0: Live a happy, healthy life with your kids. Welcome.
1: Forbes is one of the nation's leading experts in the world of trauma-informed education. Heather has worked for over 20 years helping to educate both teachers and parents in the area of using a trauma-informed approach to help students' academic and behavioral health. Heather, welcome to Momnificent.
2: Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for inviting me.
1: You're so welcome. I'm so excited that you're here. All right, so I love your book, Help for Billy, which I I told you earlier, I I heart your book. And when I read it, I was so impacted by it that um, I bought it for all my teachers in my school, and we did a book study for an entire year. And during faculty meetings, each team leader would present out, and it was just, um, I love it. It syncs with my philosophy of helping kids. And could you, first of all, just take us back, and how did you get into this work of the trauma-informed practices?
2: Well, I will say that my children brought me into that uh, whole world of it. I had no idea. Just in a brief little piece, I uh, I actually used to do architectural work, and now I am doing this work. So um, I ended up adopting two kids out of Russia. It's a long story, you know. Um, and they, they challenged me to my core, and they challenged everything that I knew about Children and how what behavior looks like. So uh, things got pretty tough, and so they had been through so much trauma that I just didn't even know what that was. I ended up going back to school and just doing a lot of research to understand what to do. And that really led me down this trail of the science behind all of this, this is not just, oh, this is something I decided to do and it worked. It's, it's really based in science and understanding the neuroscience behind why kids do the things they do. It's not just a bad choice. It's so much about uh, what they are just, their nervous systems are, are wired. They're just wired differently. They live out in a place of fear. And so I when I could really see that, and see the proof behind that, then it led me down to then, of course, taking that into my profession and working with schools. And I've been in schools. I've been with some of the hardest kids in the classroom as well. Uh, And they were also my greatest teachers. Oh my goodness. I love that. Mm -hmm.
1: And in your book, you wrote, and this is kind of a long phrase, but I'll take it slowly because it's really powerful. And I'd love to ask you a question about it. School environments, you say, they're designed for children who kind of have their natural love of learning intact and for children whose systems are hardwired to be able to sit in that classroom and just stay focused. But when a child comes along who doesn't fit that description, and we have continued to expect this child to change and to fit into that predetermined mold, no matter how much he or she is unable, what are you seeing happening in these situations and what can teachers and parents
2: do? I think the best thing to start doing is to understand from their perspective. We always have sort of taken our perspective and placed it onto them and try to get kids into our reality. We have to first get into their reality and understand what's going on. I think the the question that I put in the Help for Billy also is just for us as adults, when we're Thinking about working and having a dialogue with with children or students or our own children, that instead of asking ourselves, well, how do I get this child to change his behavior? That's the wrong question, because that's what the adult wants. So we have to go to the child's perspective and go, what's driving this behavior? Let me just understand it first, and then the solutions will come. And then if you don't understand what's driving it, this is the hardest part that I really work with is to get people to understand, well, at that moment, that raw moment when our kids are in their, just, their most dysregulated state, that's when you want to build relationship. And so the second question is, well, what can I do in this very moment to improve my relationship with this child? And that is going to be the hardest thing I think any adult will ever do. <laughs> because
0: it's if,
2: to connect with that
0: against,
2: kid. Yeah, it right. goes against everything that we've been taught because we've been taught to say, well, when a child's misbehaving, you don't want to give them attention because then you'll be reinforcing that negative behavior. Well, that is not correct because what you're doing is you are ignoring that child. And these are children who already have deep histories of rejection and abandonment. And then you emotionally abandon that child in that moment. They're going to spiral down and get worse. Mm, that's so good. Emotionally ban- Abandoned. I don't mm-hmm. think we think of
1: it in those terms. That's a really great way to put that. Wow! And is there something that parents and teachers should not do in that situation when a kid is coming in not looking like well, your typical kid?
2: Yeah, basically traditionally what we what we always have done is what not to do, and, and then we kind of go back to that and the and let me just put a little uh, understanding of why so. When children are in a very, what I call a dysregulated state, they are upset, they're stressed out, they're in that raw state they typically are going to be in a lower part of the brain, meaning that they're functioning then in what's called the midbrain. That is the emotional side of the the brain. And that is where the fear receptor is. And and so in that moment, children are not thinking clearly. They do not have access to rational and logical thought. Language is not processed as much. Sequential thinking is not put in. I mean, we just can't think clearly in, in steps of A plus B equals C. And so... Unfortunately, what we've done traditionally is we've gone to more of a sequential motive and we said, okay, well, if you don't do your homework, then you're not going to be able to do this. If you don't turn your, your paper, then you're not going to do this. That's sequential thinking. When a child is upset, they actually don't have access to that part of the brain. And we have done brain scans on that. And you literally will see that there's no blood flow to that part of the brain. So what we have to do is understand them where they are in that moment in time and meet them there in the, in the midbrain. That is the part of the brain where life happens in the next 15 seconds. And it's not about good or bad, it's not about right or wrong, it's about win or lose. And that's why it's so easy to get into these power struggles with kids, because in that moment, they don't care that you are taking away every privilege, it doesn't, it doesn't matter that they're not going to get, you know, the, the fun Friday, there doesn't, nothing matters, but winning at that moment, that's the nature of survival. So when we can connect with our students at that moment, or our children at that moment with relationship. That's when we can start calming them down and getting them back to that rational thinking part of the brain. So, what do you what does a teacher or parent do in that
1: moment? What what are your like first steps that you tell them like as a parent in that situation?
2: First step is to do nothing with that student or child until you are calmed down. Now that is not um, some people take that, oh well, it's not my fault. No, it's not. But if you want to put yourself in the most quote power, and I put Eric quotes on that in the most place of influence to change the outcome, it's, you can't be reactive. You have to change your state and just let the outcome go in that moment and trust the process, trust the process of love and relationship. And that sounds kind of fluffy, but it's, again, it's because it's when you can connect in that moment with that child you are connecting with a part of their brain that needs soothing, that needs the ability to go from that high state of arousal down to that calm. So the first thing to do is check in with yourself, make sure you're not reactive, take that deep breath, calm yourself down. And this is the, again, the hardest thing you do, but to, to trust, you know what this child right now needs me. He doesn't need the um, it doesn't need the rules. He doesn't need the logic. He, he can't, he can't listen to that right now. And I know that's going to be hard, but you have to understand there's a, there's a process to this. Once that child is calmed down, well, then you teach the rules, then you hold accountability. If there's a consequence, then there's a consequence. But you don't do it in that moment because there's something called progression to aggression. And when you give more of the rational thought and, you know, the logic, well, you need to do this, and this this combative piece for me against you, that's where you have kids completely fall out from all of the, from anything. They just get worse and worse and worse and loop into that really negative cycle. Hmm, That's so good. Thank you for taking the time to just walk us through that. So
1: we've got kids returning to school in person. And for some, it's been over a year. What are you seeing kids and parents struggling with? And what's one thing parents and teachers can do right
2: now to support them? So I think the level of uncertainty going on right now, not just for our students, but for teachers and administrators and everybody and parents as well, because parents are trying to get back to work and then they don't know, like it could be literally tomorrow that everything shuts down. And we obviously have a history of that. So I've always said that trauma happens by surprise. Trauma happens Uh, Because of there you never know what's going to happen next. And that's what we're living through right now. So we have to understand that our kids are going to come back without any type of security that they're okay that things are going to be okay, because they've lived already through times that aren't in the last 18 months. So, and I think also for us, uh, you know, I was uh, doing a big training yesterday with a uh, whole district of teachers, and one of the questions was like, "What do we do? How do we maintain our sanity of not knowing what's going to happen next?" And and so it's very hard to recognize that. And so, what to do? Uh, what I really work with teachers, especially beginning of the year, is in the classrooms, whether it is uh, elementary to middle school and high school, is to develop a sense of family. Family culture is one of the number one things to ground everybody, to get connected. This is hard, especially right now, because so many of our students lost so much learning last year. I mean, some of our kids were MIA. They were just missing. And now all of a sudden they're showing up a year later. And so the the inclination will be, let's let's get back to academics. We got to get this done. But we're so far behind. That kind of stress onto a child who's already overwhelmed is going to be a recipe for disaster. So I think that we have to, again, I I say my sort of catchphrase is trust the process. And it's hard at the moment to do that, but trust that process of connection Get connected, get grounded, get reestablished, develop that sense of of togetherness in the classroom where everyone has a sense of belonging, and then bring out the academics. And the reason I, you know, for my years of experience, obviously I've never lived through a pandemic, but years of experience of working with children who are behind in their academics, when even when you can do that in in post in pre pandemic times, I always saw kids catch up. I mean, they always, our children have a natural love for learning. Let's get them calm. Let's get them in the correct part of the brain. Get them to a place where they have some stability. And that little light, that little fire will come back on. But we've got to make sure that we we ground everyone first.
1: Yeah. And that's why we've told the teachers, like, you're taking the first two, three weeks of the school yes. year to build those community-building, team-building, family-community activities so they feel safe and comfortable, and it's okay to be open, and it's okay to not feel like you have it all together or that you're you you know, you're, you're kind of feeling a little anxious being here, like, it's okay, so do I, like that connection, like you're not alone. Uh, we've been really um, stressing Good. the this week to prepare. I'm so glad you're doing that. Oh, yeah. So what if... Um, you know, parents saying my child shuts down, has a t- tantrum, uh, things don't go their way, and they just fall to pieces. And you talk about a window of stress tolerance. Can you help us understand what that is and why
2: it's so important for parents and teachers to understand that? So two things with that. Um, what I want to go at the one little phrase you use in there, and when I listen to questions, I'm always looking to see. Where is the sort of the misconception? Where is the negativity? And that is when they don't get their own way. Because I think that we we forget that that's just natural. I mean, do you want anyone controlling you? <laughs> no. Maybe what we require of kids
1: that we would never require someone to do for, to us any, as an adult.
2: Yeah, exactly. Everyone raise your hand who loves to be controlled. <laughs> no one's going to raise their hand. So that is a natural piece. So, first of all. So let's just sort of step back and go, okay, we know that's your job to guide this child, to lead them, to help them, but it's not your job to control them. It's going to be um it's going to be something that they have to learn that internal sense of control. So just know that first of all, it's hard being a child. It is absolutely hard to have someone tell you all the time what to eat, when to do this, when to do that. And that's just hard. And so With that in mind, let's talk about the window of stress tolerance. The window of stress tolerance is just to say that uh, children who have been through experiences of of trauma, and I think the word trauma can get a little bit misconstrued in in the sense, well, well, my child doesn't have trauma, they're just being bad. Well, if a child has been through just tough experiences like the pandemic, is trauma to me. Uh, families that are in just a stressful time financially or emotionally, divorce, some of these things in our society and our culture that we just consider as normal things, they're very stressful for children. And so that is sort of what I consider trauma. So a lot of kids that go through perpetual experiences of stressful times they are what I call tuned up. They're just revved up. They're always in this high gear. They they haven't learned that internal state to be able to calm down. So what that does it that it leaves them pretty close to their breaking point. If you're revved up, then you don't have a lot of space for more stress. You just don't have the tolerance for any more stress. And a lot of our students are like that. And our kids are like that all the time. So one if you might have one child that all of a sudden they can't, you know, you, you serve them dinner and it's in a blue bowl, but they like the red bowl. Well, all of a sudden they get upset because they didn't get the red bowl. Well, for some kids, okay, they get upset, but then they move on. And they eat their dinner out of a blue bowl. Well, for a child that has a small window of tolerance, it's not about the fact that they didn't get a red bowl. It's the fact that they just don't have any more face. And so then they throw the blue bowl and they get mad, they have a tantrum, and they just go into this chaos all over the fact that they didn't get the red bull. And then we look at that as an adult and go, what, they just didn't get their own way. Look how look how spoiled they are or look how bad they're being. We put judgment on that with not really understanding internally their nervous system is just fried. And all of us can relate to this. I think in this pandemic, all of us have snapped at people very quickly. Maybe had a little road rage, you know. Whatever, our our level of patience has gone down. Just look at the news. It it, may, it starts to make sense. We have no patience for anything anymore because all of us are sort of living a little bit closer to our to our breaking point.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And and you
1: explain in your book that the amount of pressure that students are asked to handle in the academic environment frequently goes far beyond what their nervous systems are equipped to handle. So staying at this heightened level of stress diminishes their abilities to self regulate and their ability to learn. So how do we keep high expectations and meet their need when they are struggling and they're what you just described.
2: Right. It's a hard balance and it is going to need to be individualized. And I know that's hard, especially if you're a teacher, you have 30 students in one classroom. If you're a middle school or a high school teacher, you got 30 students in every single period to figure out what that bar is. But I think that you have to just look at kids and, you know, if they are starting to fail and they're not doing well, instead of just saying, well, they're just lazy because they come in class, they sit there, they put their head on their desk and they just ignore everybody. And they go, well, they're just lazy. They, they deserve to fail. Well, maybe it's too much. Maybe the assignment is too much. So I really think that we have to step back sometimes and go, where can we help our, our struggling students have some successes? It's not that you're lowering the bar. I mean, you are, but not forever. This is a temporary piece. You're going to lower that bar to say, hey, Billy, instead of doing 25 math problems, I'm going to cut this down just to five. You just do five. And if we can get ability to do five and do five successfully, then the next week we go, Hey, be like back up to 10. I know you can do it. And then eventually you will be back to 25 problems, but you got to lower that the, the amount um, and the frequency. And it's, it's really how much they can, their nervous systems can handle, get them back to that place of success and then nudge them up a little bit. It's baby steps. We really want to just always push our kids so hard and so fast and for our typical kids, that's fine. A lot of our, you know, that's that's the right thing to do. But for children who have been impacted by trauma, their nervous systems, again, are not going to be able to handle that much stress. They're overwhelmed. Their patience is low. And we just give them a little bit at a time until we build their successes back. And I've seen that happen time and time again. It's not a completely a linear path, uh, but it is something that can be more manageable at that point.
1: And that makes me think of, let's take homework, for example. So a parent is home, their kid's doing homework, they're struggling, they can't stay focused, take some hours and hours. Uh, what, what, what strategy could a parent use in that situation where in the class, the teacher could be like, here, just do five, but next week we're going to do 10. But when they get home, it's like, they're kind of required to do like everything that was listed for homework. Mm-hmm. How do you, what, what do you walk parents
2: through in those situations? I think, first of all, the way the parent can do, and I'm having flashbacks to my own children, like, by the time children get home from school, they're tired, they're worn out, they have been able, a lot of our students actually do really well in school, and they put out every single effort to be quote normal to fit in. And so by the time they get home, they just collapse. And that's important for teachers to understand. So I think there has to be a strong communication first between the teachers and the parents, and because a lot of our kids will be two different kids, one child at home and one child at school. And so, I mean, I, I always know that uh, parents have always said to me, you know, their, their child will bring home like the, the citizenship award, and then they get home and they are like tearing things apart. because because they put all their effort into school to, to make it work. And then when they get home, they have nothing left to do homework. So make sure there's a lot of communication between parents and the teachers to start. Uh, And then when parents are helping their children do homework, instead of just coming home and doing homework and then moving on, maybe the homework, isn't the first thing you do. And I know as a parent, that's like, you just want to get out of the way so you can have family time, but can you spend an hour doing some family time and getting something to eat, reconnecting, going for a bike ride, doing something just fun, and then coming back to homework? And I know that's again very a lot easier said than done, but you have to make sure your your children are regulated. You cannot learn. you cannot think unless you are regulated. So taking those big breaks are are really important. And then I think if the teach if the parent has to, if the child's still falling apart, listen. If that child is spending three hours on an assignment, they should have taken them ten minutes. No one's getting any benefit out of this, and I have had seriously have had parents that would then do the homework with the child. I don't mean just, okay, the child goes and watches TV and the mom does the homework, not that. But the parent says, you know what? Sit down just right here. I'm going to work this through with you. You give me the answers, I'll write them down or we'll work this together. And sometimes the parent even goes, okay, what's eight times eight? All right, that's 64. And the parent's writing it down and verbally working with the child. And then the parent can put a post-it note on the homework to say, hey, we did this together. We'll try again next time, but you know, individually. And and you're done.
1: Uh, Yeah, and you... you you got to pick your battles. Right, right. But I think you brought up that important key, like just communicate, you know, hey, we had a really tough time. It took us like two hours. So what we were able to do at the end was they were able to share with me the answer. And that's why you see my, you know, handwritten notes in there, or what have you. And most teachers will be like, okay, hey, thanks for letting me know. Let's see what we can do to work work through this and, and help support you. And I totally agree that kids are totally wiped out. And they put they put it all together to make it through the day. I mean, they are just working so hard. And usually the kids that struggle are the ones who are working the hardest, even though sometimes they don't look like they are, which was my other question to you about lack of motivation. Cause sometimes we're just like, they're just not motivated to do anything or to learn or to complete the task. But is there, is there anything else about lack of motivation or what looks like lack of motivation that you want to help our listeners
2: with? Yeah, I think that all of us, again, let's relate to this ourselves when you were stressed out, when you were fried, if I said to you, okay, hey, you know, today's Friday. Um, when you get home, can you do this extra work? I don't wanna do it. I, I have no motivation. Sometimes we don't have motivation to even, you know, get dressed on the weekend and and to take care of ourselves or clean our house because we're tired from the whole week. That feeling is what a lot of our students feel like every single day. And so sort of connecting with that to start. Um, but yeah, we wanna get them motivated, but I, I don't like the word motivation. What I like is the word inspiration. And I, I think motivation is more about the external because it's a, an adult trying to motivate a, a, a child that doesn't ever work. How can we get our children internally inspired? And the inspiration comes from being regulated, from being connected. If, if I'm the student and you're the teacher, and if i like you, and if I'm connected to you, I want to, make you happy. I want to have this reciprocity. And so the inspiration comes truly from relationship.
1: That's so good. Inspiration. I love it. That just totally flipped it in my mind. I love how you said that. Okay. I don't want to forget that. And it it reminds me of that uh, phrase that I learned from um, Dr. Stuart Ablon was um, kids do well if they can. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: I really believe that. Yeah. Kids really want to do well. Mm -hmm. And if they aren't, or they can't, then it's up to us as adults to really figure out why. And then it takes that process to get to the root of it. But um, I, I always keep that in mind. Like this kid really wants, if they could, they really would be doing well right now. So you've gathered a ton of feedback from kids regarding all aspects of their school experience. In your book, it was incredible to hear the feedback that these kids thought and felt from teachers in their class, what made them feel you part of the community, what, what things did and didn't help them feel supported. What would parents find the most surprising from the feedback that you share in this book from kids?
2: I think the most surprising was that when when I asked children, what do you need at school to make school better? I think what we think of adults, we're automatically gonna think, oh, you know, they're gonna want a brand new computer or they're gonna want an Xbox on their desk. You know, we we think that they want these big things that we think, oh, we can't afford that. And we get all in this estate they were basically saying, if I had more friends, school would be better. If I had my baby sister at school, school would be better. If I, you know, I I love school this year, because we had a bunny named Fufu, like from a fifth grader, that's not from a kindergartner. And so the basics of basics is what our kids need. And we kind of have we've put in so much money and so much effort into uh, improving the academic scores of our children with new curriculums and new technology, which is all wonderful. But in the meantime, we kind of forgot our kids need some of the very basics just to be happy. Um, So yeah, just kind of roll back and and think, what are just some of the very basic things that that we need just to be okay? It's
1: almost like you kind of just think of being a kid yourself. Like if, if, if you right. just kind of sit back and, and it's funny because some people like I'm such a kid at heart that sometimes I, I, I just, I kind of act like a kid, but I get so excited about things over the little things, but that's kind of right. like what kids do. And so sometimes it's easy to connect with kids, but that's just what it reminds me of you saying just that simplicity. Like mm-hmm. they have no pretense. They, they, they just are who they are. And they're not like thinking I should, or I shouldn't be this or that at the moment they just, you know, they're just human beings. Like they say, we're all about doing
2: and we just stop to be, we probably connect with that kid a little bit better. Um, yeah, there's no so purity was- about them. There's just that simplicity and purity about them that I think is, uh, again, I, I always say our children are our greatest teachers to get us back to really what what really matters.
1: Well, it's like just, just how often kids laugh. If we just learned and watched them and laughed as much as they do in a day, oh my gosh, half of us would feel less stressed, I'm sure. Um, like that simple thing If there was a study done of like how many, how many times a a kindergartner laughs in a day or a week. And it was like, like 500 times. And I was like, oh, man, you and I, you and I, okay. I'll speak for myself. And I'll be like, when's the last time I really had that good belly laugh. Right. But it's so, it's so good for, for us and, and the soul. So if a parent has a child that is, oh, I already talked about the homework one. Let's go to my next one. What are the biggest challenges you see parents facing right now? And what are you finding you're able to share with them to really help them?
2: Well, I think pandemic is obviously the biggest challenge and it's hard not to let the the political piece of everything infiltrate. And so um, I think that the best thing is, again, coming back to some of the basics and really building that relationship. And I know that's hard um, when you're stressed out, when there's so many things to do, um, but That family time is so valuable. And and when I say that, I just have these visions of our challenging kids because the minute you try to have family time, they try to create something fun. Who's the child then that sabotages it all? It's the child that is the most challenging. So it does become something very challenging as an adult, as a parent, to try to create some family time, create some togetherness because our kids that are stressed out they have hard times with that as well. So, uh, you know, I'm kind of giving you one advice and I'm giving you also my complete empathy on the other side of that, but stop everything and just slow down. That's the biggest thing I would say is just slow down. Family time doesn't mean packing the, the car and going off to some camping trip. That might be too much. Camp in the backyard because you know what? That may be all they can handle. It might be a little more fun and then you can always stop the camping trip if it goes too bad, right? Uh, so just simplify, just reduce, reduce, reduce. Uh, again, how much can your nervous system handle, but certainly then how much can your children's nervous system handle?
1: Your parents saying right now, my child is like terrified to go to school because they think they're gonna get COVID. What What's something you would share to a parent who's listening that maybe their child's facing that right now?
2: You know, I think this is a good time to, help our kids understand just the power that we have in our minds, that you can't control the outside world. And especially during COVID times, and there's so many factors that are out of our control. But the one thing you can control is your perspective and is is your internal state of happiness. And this can go for a five-year-old up to an 18-year-old as well. And I think a lot of us as adults, we still have to like remind ourselves what unconditional happiness is. Unconditional happiness means I can still be happy no matter what. The world can be going bonkers. And I still have the ability right here in my mind to find the things that I appreciate, to find the things that I love. And I know that getting COVID can overwrite a lot of that. And so I think you have to acknowledge that fear. You can't say, oh, no, honey, you'll be fine. Don't worry about it. Because if you push it down and ignore it, then that's that's going to just build more of it. So I think you listen to their concerns, you listen to their fears, and you say, yeah, I know it is a little scary and, and we're doing everything you can, but that is hard, you know, and, and talk to them like that on a scale of one to 10, how scared are you? And listen to that. As parents, we try to fix things. We try to make things better. We can't always do that. And then, and then you come in with a positive and go, okay, but this is the reality. I understand your concern and you're completely validated in that. But what can you do for yourself? What, How can you work through this? How can you find the, the wonderful things in life despite the COVID threat? So I think it is navigating the world and that's a great life lesson. We're not always gonna be stuck in a pandemic, but there's always things that are gonna be out of our control. And so to have a parent listen to that validate it what i say maximize i love maximize and we tend to minimize right minimize is like oh no honey you'll be fine you're you know we're doing this you're doing that and we we squash the concern i want you to maximize that but then give the reality and empower them empower them with what they can do with their own mind and where they can find the happiness and the gratitude and and to be able to find that balance through life and it could be as simple as
1: just asking them like okay what's one thing we could do right now that would make you feel exactly. better, make you, smile. Exactly. How make you smile. Okay. That's a great idea. Maybe we can't do it right now, but at least it gives you as the parent, an idea of this would really, and I'll use that phrase, fill, fill my kid's bucket. Yes. Like, fill them up again. And, exactly. and then they can control that, right? Because if you give them something they control and they have power over, then they feel like they have more ownership of the situation in the
2: midst of all the uncertainty, right? Exactly. And I think never underestimate the power that you have as a parent, as a teacher, as an adult to listen. Just listen. Again, you're going to want to go in there and fix it all. Just listen, and sometimes it will be. A lot of times, our kids, once you listen, they will find the solutions, which, of course, is the most empowering of all. So powerful. So,
1: in closing, if you only had one statement that you, I know you said a bunch of things, and I'm like, why are you asking me for one statement? (laughs) If you could leave us with one statement that you would share with moms, what would your mantra be for them?
2: My mantra would be, it's not about me. It's not about me. And that's a way for you then as a mom or the parent to be able just to settle your self-worth and your ability to be a good mom, a good parent, to give love is not dependent on your child's ability to receive it. With really challenging children, you could be literally mom of the year and that child would still be like falling apart you know getting bad report cards doing all these things it doesn't mean that you're a bad parent your outcome of who your child is is going to be determined on their own journey there's free will in this world so as long as you check in on yourself and you know i am doing the best i can i am you know do some self-correction of course don't don't shame yourself but do a little self-correction go okay I am loving and loving and loving my child. And just know that that's what unconditional love is. They may not be able to receive it right now. It might be years from now, but you're doing your job. And so it's not about you, whether or not they are good or bad. And I hate those terms, but that's totally the way we look at it all day long, that you you are who you are and just do your very best. And that actually is good enough.
1: I love it reminds me of that phrase, I am enough mom just tell yourself i am enough regardless of what happens what goes down you as a human um, being that is magnificent which is why i love the title of this podcast mom-nificent mom you are magnificent
2: and we know you're doing the best that you can absolutely you it's about self-love with our easy kids they love us back and it feels good with our hard kids they don't love us back or they at least don't show that they love us back and then it doesn't feel good so build and build and build your own self love your self validation i think this is a very grounding uh, experience and it's a it's an experience for understanding what true joy is joy is something that can be unconditional whether or not the world is falling apart your kids falling apart it's all about what you can be able to bring in and, and, and internally be able to process and hold that space for yourself thank
1: you so much for that and lastly, what gets you up every day and makes you smile?
2: <laughs> um, you know, I, I grew up in a kind of a traumatizing environment. Yes. Uh, so that's why I do the work I do. And, and I always, um, I, I never saw people happy. People were always just gruntled and, you know, stressed out. And I, I lived my life like that for years. And one day I woke up and I was like, no, I want to wake up happy. I had to undo a lot of blueprints. But that has been my commitment to myself, is that I'm going to wake up happy. It's so I need to wake up happy now. I mean, it's kind of like a habit now. Yeah, there's some bad days. And during the pandemic, I didn't wake up in the thick of the pandemic, I should say. I didn't wake up happy all the time. But I, I have that, like... No, I'm going to be happy and and I'm going to find a way to be happy. I'm going to find a way to have fun. And it doesn't mean that it has to be one certain thing, but that's just sort of my internal commitment to myself. So yeah, I just try to find the happiness and the fun because that's really what life's all about. It is. And it's what you create. It's your life. And you create It is. It is.
1: Thank you so much, Heather, for joining us today. Um, what valuable information. I cannot wait to share this with all the moms that I know, all my teachers that I know, and they share, share it with anybody to listen, to just help them with one idea to help them as we walk back into the school year. Now that we're starting, um, yeah. I just really value and treasure
2: every little nugget that you left us with, with. So thank you for your time. Well, you're very welcome. And my my heart goes out to all the parents and teachers trying to make things work and being in some sort of new normal. So uh, just lots of love to everyone out there making that happen. So thank you.
0: Well, that's all we've got for this episode of the Momnificent Podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, I would be honored if you would subscribe and rate if you really liked it. I know wherever you're listening right now, it might not be the best time to leave a comment, but feel free to leave a question, a review, or a comment at any time. And until next time, remember,